Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. We've got something special for you all. Today, we're gonna be sitting down with one of Cudley's senior fundraising consultants and one of Bridget and I's very good friends, Amy Peterson. With her experience in animal rescue, fundraising, and in programs like the FFA, we wanted to bring Amy on to talk about her background, the lessons she's learned, and how Cuddly has changed her life for the better. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. Other than that, let's get started. Hey, Amy, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Super good. So we should say you're recording from our office. I'm recording from my office at home, (laughs) but we do work together and you're there with Sydney. Hi, Sydney. Hi. So I'm excited to bring on another member of the Cuddly team because I know as far as our rescues are concerned, they all have their individual rep that they work with, but they maybe don't get to see some other members of the team because they're only talking to their one go-to person. Amy, you've gotten some shout outs from some of our rescues in the past that work with you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Excited to bring you on to chat about your background and kind of what an individual working at Cuddly looks like and what their experience is. Because I do think it's a very unique role. I don't know that there's a lot of other companies that have something similar. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So why don't we start with your background, where you grew up and, hey, did you love animals? Eh. Just kidding, of course. Um, So originally I'm from the Central Valley of California, a little big town called Visalia. And looking back at when I was a kid, I was thinking about it. Did I always love animals? What was my relationship with animals? And I kind of realized I never really knew a world where people didn't have animals. So like, as I got older and like got more friends, I was like, wait, you guys don't have pet. Why don't you have a pet? That's weird. Um, Because we always had animals and I've always loved animals. It took me a while to get my dad to agree to a cat. He told me forever that he was allergic, which I found out when I was like 10, (laughs) that that was a lie. Shout out, dad, you're a liar. So I would kind of just bring animals home. We always had dogs. So yeah, always loved them. Just as someone who has never been to Visalia, is it a city or is it like suburbs? What's the vibe? The first time that I've like brought some friends home that are like from Southern California, they've looked at me and they go, this is your town. (laughs) Um, So it's not necessarily rural, but it's like really flat, smells like cow shit. (laughs) But it's more like there's definitely, I don't want to make it sound like a farm town, but it's more like you're in a town and then you're in a farm or you're like like in the country and then you're in another town. It's definitely very spread out, pretty different from Southern California. Don't want to talk crap on it too much, but there is a reason why I'm still in Southern California after college. (laughs) Not a lot to do. It's a little mixture of both. It can't be so bad if it raised you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You mentioned it's a farm, got a farm vibe to it. Maybe not a farm town, but it has farms, let's say. 
And I know your background is a little bit different from someone who's from like a, a typical big city in that you were a member of the FFA. So can we talk about what your experience was like there, especially like different relationships between a pet and a farm animal that you kind of were encultured with? Yeah, definitely. So for those of you who don't know, FFA stands for Future Farmers of America. You might have heard of 4-H. So they're similar, but different. FFA is only for high school students and it's like sanctioned through a high school typically. And you have different chapters and things like that. And if I'm really honest, I mean, I've always been really proud of being in the FFA. I even... And Bridget knows this because she interviewed me. I put it on my resume. (laughs) I put it in my resume that I raised animals and things like that. I thought it was relevant. Little did I know they had no idea what that was. But yeah, it's a really great organization. I got involved in it in ninth grade because my brothers did it. And it was honestly, and it's funny to say, but it was like the cool thing to do at my school. So like partially trying to fit in you know, make new friends, but also because I knew that I would have the opportunity to raise a farm animal. I grew up in the more like, I grew up in town. I was a city slicker, as one may call me. So I didn't have a farm. I didn't have animals like farm animals, exotic animals, things like that. So with our FFA chapter and the FFA chapters in Visalia, because there's multiple high schools, we had a school farm. So it was run by Visalia Unified. So I was about 15 minutes away from my house. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do something like that had it not been for FFA. I got the mentorship and things like that. So it was really cool. When you join FFA, are you assigned an animal or are there like different positions that maybe you do something else? Is it that's the the go-to every time? So the way it works is there's actual FFA classes like in school. So it's like an elective. So our school program was a little smaller. So we had one class option and it was agricultural mechanics. And then if you took that, you were then part of the FFA. And then from there, you could choose to raise an animal. So it's like an extracurricular, like you would like a sport. Ag mechanics, I learned how to weld. I did a lot of woodworking. And we would even put those skills that we learned in agricultural mechanics to the, the school farm. So we helped build a whole new like row of pins in our school farm section. We welded them. We like built all this stuff. So it was pretty cool. That's so cool. At my yeah. high school, I, I was saying when I went to high school, they had removed like a decade prior, they had removed all of those electives. So mm-hmm. we never had the choice to do woodworking or welding or those sort of trade skills. Mm-hmm. So that's super cool. You were able to do that. That's, oh yeah. That it was, it was awesome. Totally. And I mean, like I learned how to weld. I can arc weld, MIG weld, and oxyacetylene weld. I don't use it in my day-to-day life now. But for someone that's growing up in an agricultural area, that's so important. It's a cool thing to to say that I know how to do. Maybe would not put it on a resume for this job, but... (laughs) They seem like super practical skills. Heading back to the FFA, though, people listening may have feelings about it because you are raising animals not as pets. (laughs) They are meant for consumption. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the culture behind that and things that you learned about caring for animals in that process? Because I know many of us 
may like shudder at the thought, (laughs) but we're also not all vegan. So it's kind of like a reality and opening your eyes to what actually goes on with those animals. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that stuck with me for a really long time when I was raising sheep was my ag teacher would always tell us one specific thing with changing the water bowl. So we'd have to go visit the farm every morning and night and every different time in between whenever you'd want to go, but it was definitely morning and night. And he'd always say in regards to like the cleanliness, like with the water bowl specifically, he'd say, look at that water. Would you drink it? And if we said no, then you say, no, go change it then. So it was really kind of like an eye-opening experience, especially to, to, and such a great experience to teach such a young kid. I mean, I was like 14, you know, and I carry that with me now. Right now I'm fostering kittens. And I mean, if I'm like running late to work and I see that like their litter box is maybe not super clean or whatever. And I'm like, "Mm," I'm like, no, like, would you want to poop in that? (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, if you wouldn't want to use it, then why would you let this animal use it? So, well, I know that at the end of the process with your, when you're raising an animal like that, they call it livestock. They are sold for slaughter, which is really hard and a really hard reality to deal with. The truth is, is it's the, probably the most humane treatment of a farm animal, aside from like a useless farm is what they call it. The most humane treatment of an animal that they're going to use for meat in America, in anywhere, because these animals are cared for just immaculately. Their pens are clean. And I mean, you have these kids that are learning these amazing skills of how to care for an animal and how to love an animal. Now, the end of it, when they get sold is really freaking hard. And it always turned out that the sell date was always on my birthday. And my first year that I sold my lamb, my boyfriend broke up with me. I was 14. So like, whatever. And it was my birthday. So that's when I got my first cat. (laughs) My mom got me a cat. So, you know, it is tricky, but I also am really thankful for the experiences that I had because it really taught me how to love and cherish an animal and how to care for them. Not everyone gets that. And that's something that I've noticed and like learned about cuddly when I talk about animal welfare with just like friends or family. Some people don't get it. Some people just don't know. So I think it's a really valuable experience to have as a kid learning how to care for an animal. Well, and it does seem almost in stark contrast to historically how a lot of people have even treated their pets with animals being like stuck in a place that's too cold or improperly chained or with not sufficient sustenance or water. I think a lot of people historically over the decades have treated animals almost like sub any living human thing. And it seems like that is not what that club is all about. No, absolutely not. I mean, like we would go every morning and night, every day, and, you know, we'd walk them. We were taught how to groom them and like had to clean them. They were like in pristine condition. Now, someone might counter that and say, it's like, oh, well, to make sure that they're in good shape to be sold for slaughter. But also that's not what the kids are thinking. And that's not what we took out of it. We took out of like, this is how you care for an animal. Their needs are as important as a human's. And I just think that that's so important. And it's cool because FFA is a huge organization. And so a lot of people are learning that. Shout out to my ag teacher. (laughs) I know you mentioned your fosters. Tell us 
what has your experience been like with fosters? And I know specifically with animals that are like rescued and need a home. Yeah. So this is my first round of bottle babies. I know little, little shout out little line foundation. <laughs> They've been trying to get me to do bottle babies for a while. And I finally did it. So before I had two cats that just kind of like ended up in my care and little lion helped me through it. So that was great. And I, I became attached to them, but these kittens, man, I freaking love them. I'm getting really nervous for the day that I'm going to have to adopt them out. I am going to be a like takes a day off because I'm so sad, but I mean, it's been really awesome. And I, I think back to your episode with Kathy with wings of freedom, when she talked about the concept of foster failing and why she's never done it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Like I completely get it and I probably will one day, but as much as I love and adore these kittens and I've enjoyed my time with them so much, I just, I keep reminding myself, you are caring for someone else's baby. And I look back or I look at like how much I adore my cat, Larry. And I'm like, if he were in some sort of position when he was a baby and he could have died or been euthanized at the shelter, I would have thought so highly of that person that took him in. And it's just like, someone is going to love these babies so much. And I'm just really happy to be a part of that process, even though I'm going to be sad when they go. <laughs> and if you had somebody foster failed Larry, then it's like, he never would have yeah. had the home of yours and, and you never would have had to experience the love and, and joy that is Larry David. Yeah. And Larry David, the cat. That is Larry my cat's David name. <laughs> And my foster kittens also have famous names. We have Rodney Dangerfield, Jane Fonda, and Captain Kirk. <laughs> I would not blame the people that adopt him for adopt them for changing their names. They're silly. So, but I say, do you find that like you're more attached to the bottle babies because they're so young and they? I feel like when like an animal depends on you so much, <laughs> like bottle babies do, you have to feed them and clean them and. Honestly, you have to stimulate them to go to the bathroom. It's yeah. like they are so reliant on you that you really become a mother on another level than you would if it were an older cat. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and I mean, you also helped me with this. She, Sydney helped me a lot with my first, well, and Bridget, <laughs> both you guys helped me, but Sydney definitely had to help me with the stimulation part. But yeah, no, I remember when I first got like my groove and I was feeding them in the middle of the night and stuff. And my partner would come home and he'd be like, I'm hungry. I'm like, I have like five mouths to feed. <laughs> I'm just like, God forbid. I don't want to know what I'm like when I have an actual kid because I'm just being really dramatic about it. But yeah, totally. I feel, I felt very paternal towards them and it's like really cute. I always walk in their room and I go, babies. And they look at me and it's just like, ah, I love you so much. So yeah, I, I definitely feel like a special connection to them. And I mean, I got Larry when he was a baby too. So it's like, definitely uh, feel that maternal connection. I'm like, maybe I don't have kids. Maybe I just keep getting cats kittens. You're such a pro at this. As a segue, let's talk about your relationship with rescues. How long have you worked for us at this point? I think it's been two and a half years. I was hired in October of 2019. Mm. So right before... It's almost three years. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's almost been three years. It feels like it's been longer. There's just so much to learn. And it's like my whole life has changed because of it. Okay. So... That's how I felt when I started at Cuddly too. Like I knew nothing. I knew less than nothing. So tell me, what do you feel like are some things that you learned? Lord, you're you're speaking one-on-one with rescuers every single day and hearing their ups and downs and in-betweens. 
what are some things that have really stood out to you? I would say just like how hard it is for them. I mean, I see myself as a pretty empathetic person and I have always thought I was a really empathetic person. And then I've met some (laughs) rescues and I'm like, oh my God, you guys are taking on so much like emotional strife all the time. It's definitely hard. I mean, we've done um, workshops on compassion fatigue and things like that. And like, I feel it. And like thinking about how they must feel. And I mean, it's just so hard on them, you know? Well, it's not like it's not a nine to five job for them. Yeah. It's it's not like animals when they need rescuing, you know, do it in a specific period of time. Sometimes it's it's 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. It's it's constant. There's no weekends. There's no holidays. And that's when you work with them one-on-one like you do. Yeah. It becomes the same for you. Well, and it's so much dedication on their part too. Mm -hmm. Cause I think about how much I love this job and like, you know, we all work whenever, like I've got a phone. So that means I'm working. But I mean, I think about like the rescue, they have full on other jobs. Like my mom's been a teacher for my entire, well, she's a principal now, she's a teacher my whole life. So I've been around educators and I have a lot of rescues that are freaking teachers Mm -hmm. and they'll be like calling me from their classroom. I'm like, girl, (laughs) but that's just goes to show how passionate and how much these group of people cares about what they're doing. And I think that's been something that's like, it's a whole different world that like I didn't even really knew existed. I mean, I've always loved animals. Like I said before, like I didn't know there was a world when that people didn't have pets, but there's this whole like under, what is it? Underbelly mm-hmm. of animal welfare and the animal world that just not a lot of people know about. And you think that they do, but they kind of don't. Or you think rescues have like all this free time. And <laughs> I feel like there's like this idea of like rescues not getting back to people and Mm-hmm. And shelters, you know, taking a long time to respond to inquiries or questions or concerns that come their way. And it's like, does that not show you? Like these people have so much on their plate. Like, yeah. I can see why there might be a day or two <laughs> delay in a response because they're doing so much. I know. And they, a lot of people put a lot on them because if you think about it from like the doctor's standpoint, mm-hmm. right? Or even the donor standpoint, they want this animal, like you want to adopt this animal, whatever. And then like, they're not getting a response. Then they get upset and things like that. But these rescues have so much on their plate. And that's what I think has been so cool about cuddly is that we are able to at least alleviate as much of that as we possibly can, at least the fundraising aspect of it, because I think everyone it's universal. Everyone worries about money, but if you're worried about money and you're worried about it in the sense of like, this dog's going to live or die that's just a whole nother added level of stress. So the fact that like cuddly exists and we can help them maybe like not be so stressed about money. It's just really cool. And like listening to rescues on your, on this podcast, talking about how cuddly has helped them. is just really awesome to hear. That's why I'm still here. So I still do it. You bring up such a good point too. Cause I think there is that one-to-one comparison that a lot of people have to a rescue to a business or something else going on. And it's like, I feel like there's not that piece together of this organization has made it a point not to take a salary a lot of times. And they are not showing up in the morning with their cup of coffee at 9am and clocking out at at four or whatever. They're a nurse. (laughs) They're a teacher. They're working jobs that are not the clock in, clock out kind of jobs as is. And then taking on another level beyond that. Totally. I've seen some rescues do some crazy stuff, like crawl into situations, like crawl into like holes and underground stuff, like just crazy and like risking their lives to get these animals. Mm -hmm. And then they go, they wake up and they go to work. 
I had a rescue that I worked with. She went into labor, gave birth to her baby, and then was working and messaging about some dog in the shelter the hour after, like as soon as she had been cleared and like stabilized in her hospital bed. It's like, there's no break. No, not at all. But they need to. Rescues that are listening, chill. (laughs) Don't chill on the rescuing animals part, but like give yourself some love. Go watch the episode of Queer Eye (laughs) with with, uh, Austin. What is it? Safe in Austin. Safe in Austin. Austin, Yeah. Take some advice from Karamo or Jonathan Van Ness because you'll need it. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. No boxed hair dye. You've already said all all the good things, but after this many years of working with rescues, I know we hear a lot of the same questions over and over. And given that you see a lot of people in the same circumstances too, they're one in two people running a whole operation, saving hundreds of animals. So let's first off start with what are some pitfalls that you've seen some rescues go into when it comes to being sustainable or when it comes to their fundraising efforts? I mean, I feel like you already touched on one, which is overworking yourself to the point where you're like collapsing. (laughs) So what are some things that you've seen rescuers do that you feel like you need to tell them like, hey, try this instead. I think the biggest thing would be the content for the fundraisers, you know? I mean, you have to think about it too. You have to put yourself in the donor's shoes. So that's something to keep in mind. Like I know that from their standpoint, there's all this emotion here and you're so frustrated, you're stressed, frustrated. And you're like, why aren't you donating? I feel so passionately about this. You have to take yourself out of it and put yourself in the perspective of the donor. And that can be kind of hard to do sometimes because, you know, very passionate about this and maybe but it's like, how do we make them passionate? So think about if you were a donor and maybe you, you were new to animal welfare, what can you say? And what kind of picture can you take? What kind of content can you get? You know, not just like, oh, they're picked up as they're just astray. It's like, what else can you get from their story? Not, not fabricate, but get from that story. Like, okay, they're walking on asphalt and their paw pads were raw. That's important. And what can you take from that and present to the donor to make them put them in your shoes and make them understand why you're so passionate because we get it, you know, me, Bridget and Cindy get it, Mm -hmm. but someone on this, just some random person who doesn't even know about animal rescue, they're not going to get it as well. So we have to figure out how to tell that story in a way that we're going to appeal to a random person. I think think that's totally right. I think in rescue, there's this odd concept of like seeing is believing. You can say that you found an animal on the street and they were this way, but having the visuals, I mean, let's face it, we live in a very digital world nowadays. Mm -hmm. There's so much content out there on every single platform that is available to us. There are so many photos and videos and sad stories how does this pet differ from the next? As sad as that is to say, there are just so many animals in need. So it's like, in what way can you tell this pet story? And in what way can you visibly show why this pet needs your donation? Why this Mm -hmm. pet needs you specifically more so than any other animal is very important. Well, and that's also what we're here for too. Like if you're not able to, not to say that you have to sit there and write like some really descriptive novel about this animal, but you know, the more information that you can give your fundraising consultant, the better, because we're able to kind of like wordsmith it. And of course we want your feedback. 
you're like, Amy, girl, that is too much. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, you know, we can work together. But just getting as much information to me or your fundraising consultant as possible. And we're here to coach you through like getting the content and getting the photos and the videos and things like that. And I understand that it's tricky with fosters because not all fosters take pictures as much as you'd like them to. And, you know, you guys are busy. You don't necessarily have time to chase them down, but maybe just like communicate that to them. Like in the very beginning, try and follow up as much as you can about that. Ask your vet if they can take pictures. That's one thing. It's like the the photos are so stinking important. Same thing with videos too. That's a huge one. Say, would you say updates too? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Updating your donors too is so important. That's another thing. Going back to like everything I say, I want to preface with the fact that I know that they're so busy, but that's what like we're here to help with. So if you can just shoot your fundraising consultant, like a quick update, super quick. And then that opens another opportunity for your donor to have eyes on your campaign to donate. Because you can send out that update email and then they click on the campaign like, okay, well now I I couldn't donate last week, but now I want to donate or whatever was in this update is compelling me to want to donate. See, even for those who have donated to them, Mm -hmm. it's nice to know where your donation went. Yeah, absolutely. Updating people. It's nice to see like, okay, I I donated to this animal. I invested my time to read their story. I invested my hard earned money to Mm -hmm. their journey or their recovery. It's just nice to tell them, hey, that donation made a difference. Fluffy went to the vet. This is what's happening now. It's, I think it's nice to just keep them updated. It helps them, I think, stay a supporter of yours because they feel like yeah. they were heard and that their donation made a difference to mm-hmm. that animal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're a part of the, the mm-hmm. animal story, yeah. for sure. And you're talking about this kind of framed in the way that our platform is set up, shooting updates directly to the people who have donated or are absolutely like subscribed and interested in these rescues, these are points that you can really apply to a broader sense as well. Like your community that follows you on social media, they want to hear about what you're doing and what's going on. So I think even we're biased. We think that <laughs> this is a straight shot to social media, especially nowadays is like difficult to sometimes reach the people that you want to reach. So that's why we made the platform that the way we did on Cuddly. But I think talking to your audience, talking to the people that you care about, about updates and really conveying a message that it really brings images to light and really conveys the story and tells a story through photos and through text is so important. We also just got back not too long ago from the Humane Society of the United States Conference. It was super exciting for all of us because we finally got to see after two years, like all these rescues that we've worked with for so long, we got to see them in person. It was really exciting, but we also got to meet a lot of new rescues. And I know, I mean, working in this company, as long as we have, we get a lot of the same questions over and over from these organizations who by all means have probably been burned time and time again from different avenues different levels of humanity. So let's get into what the common questions are that we hear from rescues and answers, of course, (laughs) to those questions. I would say like the biggest one is like, what's the catch? Think that we're like, what is it? Snake oil salesman or what is that what they call it? It's like, no, that's not what it is. This is real. And this is really cool. But I mean, I get it. There's some like hesitancy with 
any sort of like online anything nowadays, you know, you have, you do have to be really careful. And I honestly appreciate people that are like, okay, like kind of skeptical, Mm -hmm. like what's the catch, this and that, because you know, you're, you care about your rescue and that's really important. But I mean, I would say, I don't know what the catch is. (laughs) I don't think there is one. I think it just takes like getting to know the platform. That's why I think our role in the company is, is important to like talk to the rescues and kind of explain to them like how the process works. Cause it is like Bridget was saying, there's nothing like it out there. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't yeah. think so. So yeah, that's a really big one. What's the catch? I think the biggest one is like, what do we have to do? And all you yeah. have to do is just communicate with your fundraising consultant and we'll tell you exactly what you need to do. Outside of like other crowdfunding platforms, like GoFundMe or I don't know, Network for Good or things like that. A lot of people ask us what makes Cuddly different. And you're actually really good at explaining that. The biggest thing would be like me and Sydney, you know, your fundraising consultant. So right when you sign up, you're assigned somebody or that person maybe would have reached out to you on social media or something to try, you know, see if they can help you. Mm -hmm. And our job is literally dedicated to helping each one of our shelter and rescue partners. And I know it's hard to find good help. I know that you don't necessarily have the money to pay somebody or maybe there's not volunteers but you're literally given somebody to help you every step of the way. And what's really cool is that everyone on our team, I can say is pretty in love with this company and pretty in love with what they do. And I can speak pretty confidently in saying that they're going to give it their freaking best to help you because they, we give a shit. And I would say, you know what? That's the biggest thing. We give a shit. We do. Because I mean, I know there's other platforms, maybe like you get a video if you're confused or whatever, but People can text me or call me or find me on Facebook. You have a pretty direct line to your fundraising consultant. We also provide really unique tools within the platform, like the email marketing tool, which is really helpful. And that kind of speaks back to like the updates piece. You can literally email out updates to people that have donated versus like they don't have to go on Facebook and scour for them. And that's the other thing, tying back to like you and me and our, the fundraising consultant's job. If you don't have time to post the update on Facebook, we will literally post it for you. <laughs> yeah. And you can have trust in the fact that we're going to do good work. That update's going to look beautiful. Your campaign story is going to look beautiful because we care. We really care and we really all love what we do. And we're all very passionate people. And we've, I feel like Bridget and, you know, Sydney, you guys are here before me. I feel like you guys helped build this like really kick-ass team of people that care so much. That's what sets us apart. We've got a lot of heart and soul and love for everything. I think you explained that so well. And like, (laughs) even like, I think you were even like a little humble when you were like, (laughs) you know, we're here to do whatever you need us to do. It's so cool because fundraising consultants, they literally are here to be an extension of whatever rescue that Mm -hmm. they themselves are working with. If that rescue needs somebody to write a story for them, they're going to do it. You need them to make a graphic for you. You need them to send an email for you. You need them literally to do anything that is fundraising related. And they have the knowledge that you know they're going to give you that's going to optimize your own fundraising capabilities. But they're there to literally do anything and everything that you need. And it's free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the other thing. It is free. <laughs> and then also... We do monetary donations, but also the wishlist mm-hmm. donations as well. I foster through Little Lion, so does Bridget. 
So it is like half (laughs) girls here. And it's really awesome when I was like becoming a new foster, I went there and they just had like all these supplies for me to just grab. And they were so helpful and useful. And like, I know that that's what's translating to the other partners that we work with is that they have the supplies. And I think it was um, Retriever Rescue of Las Vegas. Shout out. I'm doing all my shout outs. They sent me a picture of like their like adopter bag or their foster bag or something. And she showed a before, like before Cuddly and an after Cuddly. And like before it was like maybe like a collar or something. And then like after Cuddly was like all this cool stuff. And it's just like setting that animal up for greatness and like, you know, in the rest of their life. And we get to help with that, which is really cool. So that's the other aspect is the wish list is another big plus. Yeah, definitely. We have this like recurrent question that we ask everyone that comes in the podcast because this podcast did come out of a time that we were all super stressed about. It was like COVID. It was, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. As someone who works with rescue so intimately, how have you seen the culture in rescue change over COVID? Oh, wow. What's crazy is that like, while so many things shut down, because I mean, keep in mind, I started in October of 2019 and then we went to our first conference, you, Virgin, you, me, or us, and then we shut down. Most of what I know has been, has been shelter and rescue through COVID. But what I did notice is that I was thinking, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen. I thought things were going to shut down, but Goddamn, these rescues people just kept going and they're like, I don't care about, I mean, not that they don't care about COVID, but they're like the animals come first and it doesn't matter. They were, they're essential workers is what, Mm -hmm. is what they are. And what's crazy is that like they're essential workers, but they are mostly volunteer. They literally put themselves at risk to continue doing this work because they love it so much. And I mean, obviously as we like learned more, you know, there's like more adaption and and things like that. But I just feel like it made people more passionate, if anything, about what they were doing. Because maybe they were Mm -hmm. like, sadly out of work. So they had more time to dedicate to rescue. I could say it was, it was definitely easier to get a hold of a lot of them because they were mostly at home. (laughs) I feel like we saw a lot of new rescue organizations popping Uh up. And it's like you said, it's probably because people, sadly, maybe they lost their jobs or Maybe when they were quarantined, they had a moment to sit down and actually realize that that's, you know, Mm -hmm. this is the time to pursue my passion or this is what I actually really want to do. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, you did see a lot of like small businesses come, like people quitting their jobs and moving on to like what they're passionate about because at one point we all kind of realized tomorrow's not always promised. We don't know. We have no idea what the hell's going on. So I think that rescue kind of flourished would be the right word. Because people were like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be, I'm passionate about this. This is now or never. Yeah. And I'd say they, I mean, thank goodness it did flourish. Cause I feel like we saw so many medical needs, so many dumped dogs, so many strays. Yeah. So So on one end it flourished to the point where like there were more people to help, but like in one, another standpoint, people were like still shady to animals, which is horrible, but at least there was, yeah, the supply met the demand, I guess. You're right. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, people yeah. did lose their jobs. They, you know, totally understand that there was a lot of animals that had to be surrendered. People didn't necessarily want to give them up, you know, and whenever there's like economic decline, of course, you're going to see like suffering of animals and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But it was, they it definitely strange... rose to the challenge, yeah. I would say. It did. I like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> you really did. 
Definitely. Oh, man. I know we've taken up a lot of your work day, so I want to be able to let you get back to all those rescues that no doubt are, are messaging you right now. But I have a final fun question for you. Of all the animals that you've interacted with, what is the naughtiest thing one has ever done? Oh my God. That's a kind of a hard question. I feel like there's been such not so many, don't count. <laughs> so many bad things. I mean, I have to think of Larry because he's terrible. He's a nightmare. I mean, if you've heard <laughs> that reel that I did, I mean, he's done some really horrible things to me. <laughs> Just like online bullying. You I was like, and... like I know. my cat did to me. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I think I told this story on the reel, but you know. So it was right when we got back for, or like we got sent home for COVID and I had just taken my computer, like my desktop home. And I set up my little home office in front of my window, coffee to the left, computer to the right. <laughs> and Larry jumped up. I have this like armoire to the left of my desk and he jumped up and there were these baskets like on top of the armoire. So he like latched onto them, not realizing they were there and pulled all of the contents of the basket onto the desk, which knocked over my coffee and knocked over it all, all over my over desktop. And like, this sounds so weird, but it had a bunch of like, it had a case of batteries in it. So like I got rained down with like batteries and then Larry <laughs> like freaked out, landed on the desk and like, and like ran off. So that was pretty naughty. That was really bad. I was really scared that I had ruined my computer. It wasn't on purpose. I think he also tried to kill me a couple of weeks ago because the foster kittens, I woke up and he was like stretched around my neck, which he never sleeps <laughs> on. He never sleeps on me like that. And I like woke up because I couldn't breathe. I remember he would, um, he would press the hang up. Oh my God. Were you there for that, Bridget? No. He would be on the phone. And cause when we were in the other office and he was a kitten and he'd walk up and just hang up the phone. Yeah. Made, he did it to conversation her just, constantly. Yeah. He loved to hit the... <laughs> the receiver. Oh yeah. my gosh. And she's like, Larry. <laughs> Naughty boy. Oh my gosh. Well, Amy, thanks for chatting with us. Anyone out there with questions can contact Amy at amy at cuddly.com. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It was great chatting with you. It was truly an honor to be able to highlight one of our members at Cuddly. We love Amy so much and we know her rescues do too. So if you want to learn a little bit more about how to get involved as a rescue at Cuddly, you can check her show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks guys.